Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer. We have an incredible guest on the show tonight. I've been a fan of hers for 20 some odd years. She's a wonderful writer. She writes on food and culture. Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl uh, has a new book out called The Essential Dear Dara, Writings on Local Characters and Memorable Places. In the book, she revisits stories from her last 25 years, including columns, profiles, and restaurant reviews from the pages of City Pages, Minnesota Monthly, Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine, Gourmet, and Savure. Each piece includes a brief introduction, putting the piece in context, and explaining why Dara considers it among her quintessential contributions to Minnesota life and culture. She also wrote another book, Previous to this, called Drink This, Wine Made Simple. She has been nominated and won several James Beard Awards for Excellent in Food Writing. And no less an authority than the late, great Anthony Bourdain, author and television host, said, Dara is right about absolutely everything. If she calls me up at four in the morning and says, get dressed, get some money and a gun, you'll need it where we are going. I don't ask any questions, I just go. We've got a lot in common, and I'd like to welcome her to the show, Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl. How are you, Dara? Oh, I am honored to be here with the living legend, Paul Metza. Thank (laughs) you for having me. Well, there's so much I want to talk uh, to you about, and we're not going to get it all in uh, one show, so we might have to have you back sooner than later. You could sure. literally, I could literally do a show on each of your pieces, and there's, how many pieces are there, and there are 30 to 40 uh, different essays and uh, pieces yeah, of Yeah, you're good, and, yeah, just write about 40 of them. And they're, they're all great. Uh, it was before, so hard picking them. I mean, I write... You know, uh, God, when I was at City Pages, I was writing 100 pieces a year. And then, you know, these days I write about 30 a year. And they're all, I love them all. And yes. And I've read a lot of them over the years. I was a big fan. And uh, back when uh, Minneapolis had two weekly newspapers, The Reader and City Pages, and of course I would read the the uh, Star Tribune and the Pioneer Press. You know, my favorite writers at that time when I was coming of age in Minneapolis, David Carr, Marty Keller, Britt Robson, Larry Batson, Jim Klobuchar, Terry Sutton, Steve Perry, Catherine Lamphere, just to name a few. Yeah. But Tara, I always uh, loved your columns and City Pages, and I would always pick up uh, the city pages on Wednesday or Thursday morning and go to my go-to breakfast joint, the Egg and I, and I'd usually turn to some of your columns first. You know, I hear that from so many people, and I will say out of that uh, hall of legends that you just mentioned, you know, I was kind of the baby. I was the cub reporter in that mix, and I benefited so much from just being around those people and hearing what they had to say. Um, you know, I would, I think I probably still repeat things that I heard Britt Robson or Steve Perry, Terry Sutton say in a City Pages room, in the, you know, edit room in the 90s. I'll give you a couple other heroes from that time. Oh, please do. Uh, 
Will Hermes, who oh, yeah. just wrote that big book on Lou Reed, he's like international superstar. He is just brilliant, and he was a music editor there. Um, gosh, how about Monica Bauerlein, who was oh, our yes, you know managing editor, and she runs Mother Jones now, like huge wow. national apartment. You know, I mean, national magazine. I don't know why I said apartment, but you know, she's. <laughs> practically the person who single-handedly brought down Mitt Romney with that secret video about, you know, how when he was saying that 48% of the country is not so bright. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, of course, and, and of course, uh, you know, put his beautiful Iris Center strapped to the uh, roof of yeah. the station wagon when he took the family for a, for a vacation. Yeah, well, which, that was one of those things. I think it's like one of those companies like, you know, your cable provider where you're just you're kind of mad at them the whole time, and then you get a chance, you know, like a reason to bolt, and then you do. You're just like, oh, I never wanted this relationship. I think that was Mitt Romney. But Monica <laughs> put it in the... I think Monica put it, you know, put him over the edge. But it was just such a, a, a land of talent at that time, and it was so... Uh, I'm so lucky to have gotten to be part of that. And, of course, the Utney Reader was publishing right out of yeah. Loring Park. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we when uh, I started to uh, hear about your book, and I think I caught an interview, I, I don't know if it was on uh, NPR or where, and uh, uh, and then when I finally got the book by your by your friends at the uh, at the Minnesota Historical Society who published it uh, and started reading it, I go. The first thing you start talking about was the aroma of Rudolph's barbecue, <laughs> and I moved to Minneapolis to Ridgewood Avenue because I knew one guy, the musician Tommy Lieberman, who I just saw when I played at the Dakota about three weeks ago, and the only guy I knew in Minneapolis, so I moved to 441 Ridgewood Avenue, and when you talk about the aroma from Rudolph's Barbecue, I remember it like it was yesterday. Same. I mean, <laughs> that, I got, my college boyfriend and I moved into this tiny one-bedroom apartment on the third floor walk-up, and it was this sparkling, beautiful you know, day when we toured it and everything, it just was like all these vines on the window and everything seemed yeah. great. It was like, so what if it's tiny, but it had, you know, it's, it's close to everything and has these beautiful wooden floors. We move in, they fire up the smoker next door at Rudolph. The exhaust <laughs> pipe is like one inch from the window. I was hungry the whole time I lived there. It was like, oh. What was your, when you finally, because I know it took me a while till I started to gig around and make some money before I could actually afford to eat there every now and then, but when you finally started to make some money writing, Dara, what, uh, did you go down there and, and have a, uh, uh, have a, have a, a dinner? And if so, what was your favorite? Uh, mine was the Clark Gable. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it took a long time to make some money. And so I was more getting the free chicken wings and government cheese up at Liquor Lyles. That every was my... Uh, every, Wednesday, every Wednesday night, you know, yep. that the, they had to bring in that block of cheese on a, uh, uh, yep. you know, and, uh, on a dump truck. That thing was the size of three or four tables. But, oh, I remember it well. Oh, do you remember, like, I learned from, you know, some other bar patron how you had to hold your little paper plates like you made a fan across all of your, <laughs> your fingers so that it would turn into a big plate and you could just keep up those wings. I remember those to this day. That's what I, you know, I, I did finally get to Rudolph's, but I think I 
was at that point I could only eat food that was on my expense account because I was so busy and broke at the same time. And so, oh yeah, I don't think I ever. I didn't really ever click with Rudolph's. I remember them having amazing coleslaw and a Greek salad, and I was like. I I think I like this place for the vegetables. Is that wrong? I was like, yes, that's absolutely wrong. So I never, I never quite got it. I understood, you know, later talking to people that it was one of the early restaurants where like black and white customers of South Minneapolis would mix. But yeah. I, that was before my time. It was one of Prince's favorite joints. Um, you know, what's funny. I drove down. Uh, I'd like to drive down through South when I get to Minneapolis every now and then. And I drove past uh, that uh, uh, Franklin Lundell, the, the uh, intersection both of us know very well. And I always would tell the story, and the sign is still up above Mortimer's Bar. It said bar and restaurant. It still says it on that oh, plastic yeah. <laughs> sign. And when you go in, you'd go into uh, Mortimer's and you go, where's the restaurant? And like, food, they go, <laughs> they'd say, across the street. <laughs> Did you ever, were you of the time now, it might have closed by the time you moved to uh, Richwood. Did you ever get up to the soda fountain at Birch Pharmacy? No, but a lot of my early short stories, I had a, 20, you know, 20-something, mailing short stories away all the time. It was all at the post office at Birch Pharmacy. So they had sure. already closed the soda fountain, but I, uh, I, to this day, miss that little post office. Everybody was so sweet, and they were so encouraging, and they'd be like, you can do it. <laughs> right in the back. I remember it yeah. well. Now, uh, do you re- now, how about the, uh, the Rainbow uh, Restaurant on... Uh, 29th in Hennepin. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I don't know if I know the Rainbow Restaurant. Um, I know Rainbow Chinese. Yeah. So, yeah, I moved here from New York City in 19, well, from Carleton College. So New York City, then Carleton College, then I moved here in the summer of 92. So it was, um, you know, still very much like basement punk rock shows, so yeah. um, maybe Babes in Toyland was playing a lot, and there was a, a, a house called Big Trouble House where a lot of stuff would happen that was over by Hennepin and Franklin, but th- a lot of things had already gone into the past. Like, my first restaurant review was for Lucille's Kitchen, which sure. I did not put that review in the in the thing, but it was, uh, you know, a ladies' lunch counter from the olden <laughs> times. And I think it, I, I was just so mystified, this really heavy, very pretty china and actual, you know, plated jello salads, like a tiny little, you know, mold the size of two eggs or whatever. And I, I think I wrote about it as a, you know, I was just interested in it place and history and people and I think it closed six months later and I didn't understand till 20 years later what a rare opportunity it was to to actually see a ladies lunch counter now where exactly was that Dara it was on 26th street right across from the Swedish Institute in the base of an apartment building yep that's exactly where I where I thought it was um Dara Moskowitz we've got so much to talk about you, at the beginning of your book, it's a very harrowing uh, read because you had a, a really tough childhood with you, with your father and your mother. But talk a little bit about it because that was kind of the gateway when you finally met uh, 
when you got a job washing dishes, that really started your journey. But talk a little bit about that uh, growing up in that kind of a troubled home. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the reasons I wanted to put all that out there is because I just constantly meet people and they have this idea that I'm like some character in Sex and the City, that I just, you know, it's all limousines and big floofy dresses and nothing but fun. And it's like, I learned how to do that on the page. And I kind of learned how to do that on the page as a way of self-comfort. So I I grew up in one of those domestic violence households where, you know, you, you just, you come home from school, you don't know who's going to be bleeding from where. And, oh, man. You know, the next thing you know, everybody is just rolling around the floor, you know, kicking and punching and screaming at each other. We're, and people are calling the cops and children are hiding in trees. And, you know, it's just like bedlam. It was a, a childhood of bedlam. And what a lot doesn't make sense to me or my brother or anyone hearing this because my dad was wealthy. He was a, you know, pulled him up from his bootstraps, uh, Wall Street success story. His dad was a, a very abusive plumber, and then my dad became a very successful Wall Street person, but it was like his facade of success ended at the front door, and we were, you know, you know, you either... If you didn't bring home straight A's, it's because you were the biggest idiot in the world. And if he was just in a mood, he would just, you know, smash you through a wall. And wow. it was, it was, it was crazy. I left home at, you know, he kicked me out of the house any number of times. He had this crazy kind of libertarian belief that uh, children should be self-supporting starting at 13. Uh, wow. Like, like Carnegie, like Andrew Carnegie was. Yeah. And, uh, and the and Republican so, Party these days. Oh, uh, my dad was a fundraiser for the Republican Party, and he, you know, he believed in child labor, and, you know, <laughs> he believed in no protections for children, and that children should be self sufficient at 13 and out, you know. And so we were, he would leave on these, you know, European business trips, and then we would have no food in the refrigerator and my mom would be stealing you know cheese from the from the grocery store and it was just like we were living in this weird poverty only because of my dad's constant rage and and wow. i learned as an adult that that's financial abuse i'm like that's not uh you're not supposed to do that you're so have some kind of responsibility to children to feed them and you know <laughs> and why you would have three children if you didn't love them is a you know, but I mean, it was it was constant. You know, he he just beat you, and at the same time, tell you that you had ruined his life. You know, and the reason he was beating you was sort of for the sin of having ruined his life. Um, wow! And I, I just, as an adult, I think that that must have been done to him. Like, there's no other way to, to for me to make sense of it. Well, and as we'll be as we'll learn in uh, through this hour in the Wall and Power Radio Hour with uh, Dara Muskowitz Grumdahl. She's a she's a mother with two great kids, one who loves Lead Belly, which I really enjoy. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that, how she got to Minneapolis and how she came of age. Uh, but first, we're going to listen to a little Ramones, I Want to Be Sedated, and then back with Dara Moskowitz-Grundahl on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. I want to be sedated 
to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzik. My guest for the whole show tonight is one of the best writers in Minnesota, if not America, Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl, who writes about food, culture, and travel. We're not going to be able to get everything in today, uh, but we're going to go back to New York here for a minute and then get to Carleton College in Minneapolis when Derek came to town. Tell us a little bit about this guy, Joseph Mitchell. I've never, I was a big Jimmy Breslin fan, but didn't oh. know anything about Joseph Mitchell. Well, he's a prior generation. He's probably a person that Jimmy Breslin looked to also. So, you know, the other part of me is I love reading. Like I love writing. I am a complete writing nerd. You know, I was a uh, in kindergarten, I was the editor, or so my kindergarten teacher told me, I was the editor of the kindergarten haiku anthology. (laughs) (laughs) And I really, you know, I think this is true for a lot of kids. I just lost myself in books. It was like a lot of everything around me is truly horrible, and I'm going to a different place. You know, I'm going in between my ears to a, a place where... Um, you know, the, the world makes sense, and people seem to like each other. Uh, and, and so I've been a writer, you know, a reader and a writer since I was tiny, and I love writing. And when I got to high school, actually, uh, the I, you know, I, I just start, teachers started telling me who I should read and what I should be interested in. And this guy, Joseph Mitchell, was a New Yorker writer who would just kind of hang out at different places, um, often Skid Row, that's kind of what he was famous for, and um, just tell really interesting stories about everyday people. And I love that. Like, I don't really think that the world needs any more stories about uh, kings or queens or celebrities, though I do do a lot of that because that's what people want to read about. <laughs> but I right. like regular people, and I like talking to regular people. And that's, you know, that's what you find in the book is the the interesting regular people of Minneapolis. You know, here's someone who um, was the Aquitennial Queen right after World War II, and and here's someone who is, uh, you know, making cheese in Wisconsin, and here's someone who had a dream of making a Hmong market right by the, you know, state capital. And so um, I think the reason the Minnesota Historical Society Press wanted to publish this is because a lot of this is history, but the oh, reason yeah. that I wanted to do it is I'm just interested in um, – I'm just interested in people, and I'm interested in Minnesotans. And I think one of my uh, secret superpowers coming from New York City is that a lot of Minnesotans are like, oh, there's nothing interesting here. It's all boring. And I'm like, no, this is all very interesting. People are very interesting. (laughs) So then I get to just go around without any competition 
and be interested and talk to people. I one of the there's it, it, literally in the press release for Dara's book, the essential Dear Dara writings on local characters in, in memorable places. It talks about how people laugh and cry, and <clears throat> there's some really touching stuff. I want to go back really quickly to when you were a child. What book you were reading? You'd read it to go to bed at night, and it was had two characters, and the book fell out of the bed, and you'd wake up in the morning because you thought those characters had fallen on the floor. What book was <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, Wind in the Willows. Oh, my oh I God. love that book forever. The Ratty and the Badger and that crazy Mr. Toad. <laughs> So you get to Minneapolis. Talk, because there's, uh, I'm sure there's uh, young folks out there that are going, boy, Dara sounds interesting. Uh, I want to be a writer, too. What, uh, before you tell them not even to consider it, because I know how tough the, it is, tell us how you literally uh, put your pennies together, started submitting pieces, and when did you get your first piece published? Well, I, that I got my first piece published, you know, days after I got up to the Twin Cities, and that was only because I had, you know, all through college I had been editing a culture magazine, so I had a bunch of pieces that were, you know, resume ready, and all through, and my secret to life was that I would just do the stories and not think about the money. So my first pieces that I got published at City Pages I was getting paid ten dollars uh, or fifteen dollars if I was lucky, and so wow. my whole life was just like ten dollars here and fifteen dollars here, and it takes me all week to write a story, and I get fifteen dollars for it. So I was also working at a phone bank for seven dollars an hour, and I was working at Chi-Chi's downtown Minneapolis. I was cocktailing sure. in a shirt with a big toucan on it. <laughs> I was uh, funny, but. I was very much like living in my head, like I'm gonna, you know, get this, get these, get this work done, get published, learn how to write. And then when we first started talking, we were talking about this just, you know, tower of giants that City Pages was in the early 90s. And they taught me how to write, you know, so in exchange for $15 every month, you know, I was, I was getting edits from Monica Bauerlein herself. And she was like, this is terrible. Do a transition here. This is terrible. Do a transition here. This part is good. Keep that. And so wow. that's the kind of thing that, you know, I could never, uh, I should say, like, with my ritzy dad and everything. So after he kicked me out, soon thereafter, he disowned me. So I never had the opportunity to go to grad school or anything like that because I just needed money, 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 money. And my secret to life was keeping my expenses low. You know, I didn't have a car those exciting years when I was earning $15. I had a $15 bike from Steeple People, which was a oh, thrift sure. store. Yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> I've got, I, st- I still have a couple jackets I bought from Steeple People. The, the, there was that short little guy with that bad toupee. Yeah. Lovely guy, yeah? <laughs> sure. Sure, and, you know, well. my advice to you know my advice to kids is, like, you know, if you really want to do it, then just do it. You know, that's what I did. It's like the money... You, you don't do this for money. This is not it. You know, a lot of people, I've had a lot of coffees with a lot of 20-somethings over the years, and the mistake people make is they think, I want to be famous, and I want to be like a writer in a movie. That's not available. <laughs> like, that's right. not, that, that is not on deck. Like, nobody is, you know, 
the the thing that you can get is the satisfaction of the work, and you can teach yourself to be a writer. And if you really, you know, it's like being a musician or a poet or any of those things. You know, if you want to be a writer, then you just need to start writing, and the rest will take care of the rest. But uh, I had, you know, I uh, I tried when I moved down from the Iron Range. I tried to, I applied for the University of Minnesota Music School. I mm-hmm. passed my playing exam. I actually was taking guitar lessons uh, from a guy named Robert Wander, who I found out a few years later was Dessa Darling's father. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and Tess has got a great book out called Tits on the Moon. Uh, just, I'm a, a huge fan of hers. But, um, I was, I completely blew my theory exam. I got a letter that said, upon reviewing your test scores, we highly recommend you find another field of study. So yeah. for me, 30 years later, when the University of Minnesota Press contacted me and said they'd be interested in me writing my autobiography blue guitar highway but that was kind of that was my comeuppance that's that's there there you go that's my degree so but you know i like you're talking about learning from all the great writers and monica your great editor i did the same thing i go to the uh 26th of nicola to the artist quarter to see dave ray every sunday night Mm -hmm. i learned so much stuff from him i go to the west bank to spider john kerner and willie murphy learned right literally at the feet of masters so i totally get it let's talk a little bit for a minute about the Super America at 22nd of Lindale, where I where I met Tom Arnold. I used to see him. We'd always show up, entertainers would show up there, you know, after their gigs. I, I, bumped, I met Prince. I gave him my first Cats Under the Stars single in 82. He was sitting in a really nice car in the parking lot waiting for his buddy to get some, some uh, uh, essentials. But I remember the what? guy that you write about... That's talk incredible. About, talk about the guy with the American flag. I remember him well. Uh, so I li- at this point, I'm living in that place, you know, a block away. I don't have a car. A friend of mine tells me, you got to just go stand in the Super America parking lot. There's something weird going on. So I take my little notebook and I go over there. And this guy was just kind of doing, like, libertarian freestyle, super yeah. formal radio, like, just through the Super America speakers. And it was so charming and uh, so interesting. And I think that was the first big story that I got published at City Pages, like a couple, in, you know, like a more than a more than a couple of inches, you know, like a half page. Um, and it was, it was just perfectly me. So, like, I just listened to this guy forever, and I took notes on everything he had to say, again, forever. And then I just distilled it into this moment. And it was such a, it makes me feel really nostalgic for a, a simpler Minneapolis where we didn't have so much political division and, you know, people could just be eccentric and... Um, interesting and we could be interested and didn't have to feel threatened well there are so many pieces that i highly recommend anybody that grew up in minneapolis and st paul is going to love dara moskowitz's book the essential dear dara uh but it brings up when you talk about the simpler minneapolis and kind of the magic that was part of that was the story about uh, the guy from Cameroon uh, Bibi Zahara because he mentions about that magic of Minneapolis and how he would love to get find some of that again talk about him it's a phenomenal story oh yeah so Bibi Zahara Benet is one of the biggest drag stars in America and 
came out of Cameroon, um, came to the about 5,000 Cameroonians that live in Minneapolis. They tend to be a very churchy group. Uh, and he is kind of more situated in Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center up there. Um, so he came to town, um, met someone while he was going to college, and this person said, I think you need to come with me to the gay 90s and kind of see what that's about. I have a feeling about you. <laughs> and he walked in and was just like, Oh, this is my destiny. This is my identity. This is oh, who right. I am. And right. then went on to win the first uh, season of Drag Race. Still lives here. Up- appears at Roxy's Cabaret, which is super fun in downtown Minneapolis on the uh, on the uh, Nicolet Mall at the edge of it there. And uh, you know, it's just um, I wouldn't say that the Minneapolis magic is over, but things were so cheap. You know, my first yeah. apartment on Ridgewood was. $425 a month, split two ways, you know, and I had these $15 stories, and I didn't have health insurance, and it just was doable, and I, I feel like we are in this uh, period of just everything has been analyzed by a computer and an analyst to get every dime and dollar out of it, and it's it's kind of taken a lot of the art out of it, everything, or the opportunities to be artful and things. Oh, absolutely. Same thing in New York City, San Francisco, wherever. You know, my first apartment on Ridgewood was $125 a month. It was a studio. I had uh, all my records, uh, several guitars, and my snowshoes, which I never used. Why I took those down from the range, I'll never know. But our other connection, which I loved, because I spent uh, a lot of my early career, was at Kinko's and Uptown. Putting together promo kits, and I have to apologize. I did figure out a way to walk out of there occasionally with some free, uh, free, free copies. copies. Yeah, there was a but, lot of that. You take this, uh, that <laughs> counter out of this thing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, uh, it was the era of zines, and it was the era of uh, promo pieces. And also, I will say, like it was the era in which like extremely crazy people would just go there. And you know Xerox things, and um, and and they wouldn't put them on the internet, and it, so they had limited reach. And I feel like that was a better world. But yeah, the uh, the oh gosh, that was you know that was my life. Take my steeple people bike up to the Kinkos. You know, take my fifteen dollar story that I you know my story that I got paid fifteen dollars for. Get uh, my friend Jeff, who worked at Kinko's, to get me a copy for free. <laughs> you know, go home. Like it was uh, very. It was a small life, but it's a. You know that kind of training. It, it couldn't. It, it was really invaluable. You know, well, and I the, feel bad for you is, know, kids the, today because it's the really proof hard in, to achieve that. The proof is in the pudding, Dara. You're such a well respected and published author and writer. Uh, we've got more to talk about. You know, it's funny because uh, you mentioned Liquor Lyles or the CC Club, which I'm sure you spent some quality time on. Oh, yeah. A lot of those bands that were eating those free chicken wings and government <laughs> cheese at Liquor Lyles, you'd see them at Kinko's making their band posters. Then you'd see them walking up and down Hannafin and Lindale when you could still staple them to the telephone pole. So oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Let's listen. Uh, here comes a regular by one of those bands, The Replacements, and then back with uh, Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Well, a person can work up a mean, mean thing. 
After a hard day of nothing much at all The summer's past, it's too late to cut the grass There ain't much to break anyway in the fall And sometimes I To the third set of the Wall and Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metz, and my guests on All Night Tonight are the most enjoyable and fascinating and delightful Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl. Her new book, Essential Dear Dara Writers on Local Characters and Memorable Places, is highly recommended uh, here. I just loved it. There's a lot that we're not going to be able to get to, but let's talk about. Uh, are some of the staples in Minneapolis foodie cuisine, <laughs> and you were you were almost single handedly uh, uh, able to get the Juicy Lucy, uh, the great hamburger, <laughs> in front of the national press. Talk about the Juicy Lucy a little bit, and uh, that article, and what a uh, tsunami of, of press that started. Yeah, other, you know, a, of course. Everybody in Minneapolis has always known about the Juicy Lucy, which is a hamburger with the cheese in the middle, uh, as I suspect invented at Liquor Lot. I mean, uh, what did I just do? At Matt's. Oh, yeah. Invented at Matt's and later, um, I think, spread throughout the uh, metro, particularly down Cedar Avenue to the 5-8. And I, <laughs> the secret of that story is, uh, of course, as a person from Minneapolis, I knew, you know, the Juicy Lucy. But what happened was I got a cold. This isn't even in the book. This is the story behind the story. So I had been doing a bunch of work for Gourmet and, you know, New York City publications, and I got a cold. And you probably never thought about it, but a restaurant critic with a cold is essentially like a doorstop. Like there's nothing. (laughs) You can't do anything. So I was sitting in my house thinking like, Oh, what am I going to do? I have to get a column in. I can't taste anything. Uh, what next? You know, so right. I was just like, well, I'm going to write about Juicy Lucy's. No one's ever done it. I've been to, you know, all the Juicy Lucy places a million times. I will just call up the owners on the phone and put this together. 
And because I think I was a little loopy from being feverish, the story has a certain um, <laughs> a certain lightness to it. And sure. uh, I I just was like, I, at the point, I was really so sick of having to justify Minneapolis and Minnesota food to people who couldn't find, you know, Minnesota on a map. And that was a truth, like, I cannot emphasize to you how true this is. So I came out from New York City, I went to Carleton, I was there for four years, and my mom called uh, called me up right before, you know, a couple of weeks before graduation, and she said, what airport should I fly into? Should I go to Ann Arbor, or should I go to Minneapolis? Like, oh, where do you think I am? You know? Right. <laughs> And that's just a perfect example of what what Minnesota is to New York City. And so then I put all of that frustration into my first Juicy Lucy story, and it just kind of happened to hit right around when the Food Network was born and all of this sure. reality food. And so all of these uh, East Coast producers and West Coast producers just thought, we're going to make a whole show about this. And then I think I spent 10 years just standing outside of Matt's or um, this the 5-8, you know, taping Food Network spots. Like, you're not going <laughs> to believe it. They put the cheese on the inside. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, was, uh, that was a very peculiar uh, but fun uh, part of life. And now the Juicy Lucy is something you can get in New Jersey and Buenos Aires. <laughs> right. A mate and President Obama ate at Mass, 34th yeah. and Cedar. I remember it. I, uh, I remember the, the press around that. I, uh, uh, you also really give a nice shout out uh, in your book to LGBTQ folks. Oh, yeah. And you talked about Ye Gabs, which you mentioned in your book was one of the uh, kind of first out uh, gay-owned restaurants. But I, I have to jump in here a little bit because I moved to town in 78 and I was a ticket salesman at uh, Dudley Riggs, etc. on Seven Corners. And across the street, the Haberdashery, which was originally uh, below um, the Radisson, uh, downtown had opened another place in uh, Seven Corners, and it was uh, the word was it was a kind of openly gay, very gay friendly. Of course, as was all, all re- most restaurants and bars in Minneapolis at the time. But they had a uh, something on the menu that we used to get a kick out of when we'd go over there on our breaks. They had the juicy Brucey. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Well, you know, I don't know if I, I... I do have a big section that's kind of a, a gay oral history. I don't think that I think that that's the first gay restaurant, EGADS being the first gay restaurant. I think that was what a, a, a server there uh, told me. But, it, you know, I talk about these other places that predated EGADS, like the dugout or, oh, gosh... Um, Oh, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, Roman, the noble Roman. I mean, so there's mm-hmm. always been, as long as there's been the Twin Cities, there's been gay culture in the Twin Cities and, uh, you know, bars and, um, you know, and, and, and it's a, <laughs> but I wish I had been to Ye Gads. It sounds so fun. It just <laughs> sounded like the most, like, lively place. And uh, people told me that the, the chicken croissant sandwich was like the best chicken croissant sandwich in the world. And that's the kind of thing I don't think I've ever had a good chicken croissant sandwich. So now I want to go in a time portal and go back to Loring Park in the late 70s and early 80s and try that. 
revisit those times. Well, you know, we've had such a uh, uh, just a lovely uh, gay culture in Minneapolis. In fact, when I moved to town, they said I read somewhere that uh, Minneapolis had the second largest gay community next to San Francisco, and they brought so much color, humor, sophistication uh, to the Twin Cities. So God bless. All of them say there is a really fascinating story. Uh, We've got about six minutes left and there's so much more to talk about. But the story that blew my mind was about the con artist. Oh, (laughs) I love that story. Yeah, that is a long one. All right, I'll give you the crazy. So, uh, it's 1968. Uh, one of the most gentle, sweetest uh, people in Minneapolis or Minnesota, uh, Mark <laughs> Mark Forgey, uh, decides to dodge the draft. He didn't want to go to Vietnam. He um, he goes to Europe. He falls in with all of these kind of draft dodging, hippie, drinking, smoking hash, you know, that kind of thing that was happening at the time. Um, he ends up moving in with the greatest art forger in the history of the 20th century, this guy named Elmer de Hori, and he uh, becomes his, like, roommate, helper, um, you know, assistant for the last, I don't know, 10 years of his life, and then there's this, it's in the book, like this extremely dramatic story. Um, Elmer DeHory is no longer with us, and Mark Forgey comes back to the United States to like face the music and uh, pick up his life with crates and crates and crates of the greatest art forgeries the world has ever seen. And they're all with right. him right now in Minnesota. And that is, um, those kind of stories, you just love to find them and you love to tell them, and it's so, it's so fun. And that's what I guess you know. What I would say is that if you're just you know sitting in your kitchen and like, what's interesting about this book? It is that Minnesota is interesting. The people in Minnesota are extremely interesting and funny and quirky and vital and nationally you know significant. And people don't like. We all kind of want to not be the tall poppy and we want to hide our light um but we if you don't want to do that you you can pick up this book and you can see like all of the the vitality and the characters and the extremity and the wonder that i see in minnesota and you can see me as one of the great eccentrics of minnesota like i came here all all mess and then i truly feel like minnesota healed me and that's what i feel like is the the beginning of the book and so you know, Minnesota is a healing place for me, and it is a place of the most vital and interesting people and the most beautiful nature and the most wonderful music, and it's all kind of in that book. And I am the New Yorker who is not afraid to say that I love it here. <laughs> God bless you, uh, Dara. I, I, I just I love speaking with you. I love the book. Everybody out there in the Wall of Power Radio Land, go out and get it. Buy it. At, it's at finer bookstores everywhere uh, by Dara Moskowitz, Grumdahl, The Essential of Dear Dara, and uh, published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Um, one other question, and we're going to have on you on again soon because there's just so much more I'd love to talk to you about. But when did, you know, it's hard to believe not only did we have two weekly uh, uh, kind of uh, 
newspapers in town, the reader and the city pages. But we had you were one of, you know, a very well-known food writer. But we also had uh, Carla. Uh, what was it? Waldemar. Oh, Waldemar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so when do you, when did Minneapolis started turning the corner from our provincial regional foods to now it's becoming a very well-known foodie town? Yeah, my my take on that is that it's been a foodie town the whole time, and I would write another. I'll write another book, but I'll give you my very one minute thesis: the Twin Cities is the Silicon Valley of food, uh, with a bunch of all of not all, but like most of our Fortune 500 companies are in fact food companies. So obviously General Mills, but did you know that Target is one of the biggest grocery companies in the nation? I mean, it's like top three at this point. Um, uh, Cargill is a food company. Lando Lakes, it's a food company. And so what do all of these food companies have in common? And there's, and I could do this for an hour. There's so many of them. But they are, oh, and just, oh, I could do, I could talk about this forever. I'm trying to be focused. Um, yeah. They all have employees who care about food, right? And so we have always had a, a restaurant culture and a food culture that punches above our weight, okay, because we have this mass of professionals who are really interested in food. They're interested in it professionally. They're interested in it culturally. They're just passionate about food. And so I think that we have um, currently national-class restaurants. We could hold our own. The restaurants here are as good as they are in almost every American city, except for San Francisco and New York City. Like, I think we're a solid, you know, in a big tie for third place with a lot of other places. Um, we have good as food as you'll find in Boston. We have as good food as you'll find in Washington, D.C. Um, and and that's because we are the Silicon Valley of food and uh, one day people will all realize that, but I've been saying that for uh, five years. <laughs> this What a great way to end this interview on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. And we could add to that, Minneapolis-St. Paul also has had one of the best music scenes rivaling anyone in Amer- any city in America. Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to meeting you in person, speaking with you again. Everybody go out and get her book, Essential Dear Dara Writings on Local Characters and Memorable Places. Thank you so much, Dara. And I also want to give uh, uh, you a high five on great article on our mutual friend John Munson, the great musician and bass player. That was really nice in the last uh, uh, recent issue of Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine. Well, Good luck with everything, Dara, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Patrick Lilia. We'd like to thank our guest, Dara moskowitz Grumdal. Go out as soon as you can to get her new book, Essential Dear Dara, Writings on Local Characters and Memorable Places, available at Finer bookstores everywhere. You can get my books, Blue Guitar Highway and Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece at those same fine bookstores. And you can get my records at The Electric Fetus. Follow me at paulmetza.com. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. Happy New Year, everybody.